This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. My guest today is Tammy Barlett. It's always a pleasure when I can have another woman on with me. Awesome. It's great to be here. Well, Tammy, let's start at the very beginning. How does a girl from Minnesota want to fly a jet? That is a great question. And the truth is, is that I didn't, not because I didn't want to, it's that I didn't know about it. So basically what happened was I was really interested in serving my country and I was really interested in joining the military. And being that there's really no military bases around Minnesota, there's a, gar- there's a Gardner Reserve base, but you know, you don't really even know they exist growing up there in the suburbs. I didn't know anything about mil- the military except from what I saw on the television. So the idea is boot camp, right? And I thought, man, I, I can't do that. But the bottom line is I was taking some college classes in high school, gentlemen in my class who had been in the Navy. And I went up to him one day and I said, Hey, I'm really interested in the military. And I was thinking about the Navy. And he said, that's awesome, but I think you should go in the air force. <laughs> and I was okay. You know, I, why? And he, he told me that he thought it was, they treated their people better. It was a little cleaner and they were more advanced at the time with respect to how they treated women. At this point, it was 1994. I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And so I went to the university of Minnesota and I asked them if they had air force ROTC. Cause I figured, well, I'll just get some information. Cause I knew I wanted to go to college and I show up. And one of the first things they ask me, and I think they ask everyone, this is, do you want to be a pilot? Cause they I kind of assume that if you want to go to air force ROTC, you want to be a pilot. And I kind of looked at him perplexed and I thought, pilot, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> that sounds great. I was a roller coaster kid. I climbed trees. I was a gymnast. It sounded like the perfect office in the sky. And I said, yeah, I want to do that. And so that's really how it all got started. That sounds like Erin because she was a roller coaster fanatic. I assume she still yeah. is. Are you? You know, I had cervical spine reconstruction and mm. it's just not the best. So, and and I think honestly, after getting to fly fighter jets, it's just not as exciting anymore uh, to be truthful. So, yeah. but I love watching my kids love it. So <laughs> what was the interest in the military? Why did that pique your curiosity? You know, I'm just very service oriented as far as helping other people. And I appreciate America and everything it's given us you know, my childhood and just the the opportunities that you have. I've been to other countries, not a ton at that point, but I had been to other countries and I I just wanted to, you know, be part of something bigger than myself. I absolutely love being part of a team and serving as a group. And I, it was just, it was kind of in my heart. Do you have any military background in your family? No, I don't. I mean, I have a couple uncles that get it. One did a couple years in Korea and I think one was, well, I think they were both Korea. But I didn't even know about that really until I joined. And they're like, oh, I was in the military. <laughs> and how oh. did your parents feel about you joining? Were there any hesitations? Oh, absolutely. But there was no, like, there was really no verbal discussions. Like, I don't think you should do this. It was more of shock than acceptance. Because the phrase my mom always likes to use when people ask her about it is, 
Tammy's going to do what Tammy's going to do. And that's not, not meant to be anything negative as far as like breaking rules kind of thing, but more of like, if I set my mind on something, it's going to happen. So just don't get in her way. It's not use. It's not use good use of your time. You decide you want to be a pilot. Were there mm-hmm. any concerns about motion sickness? Were you worried at all that once you get started, you might not be able to finish? Or did you feel pretty confident about that? I don't know. I mean, I think that there was that thought because you hear about that. But when I when I was between my junior and senior year of college, I got selected for a program called Operation Air Force Overseas, where I spent three weeks at Sp- Spangdalem Air Base in Germany, and I was attached to an F-16 squadron. And one of the things they do is they give you an incentive ride. And I got horribly sick. I was literally so sick that I left after we landed and got back to the debrief. I had to leave the debrief to go throw up uh, and just being blunt. And I really thought I can't, I can't do this. I'll never be able to do this. This is horrible. And I have a lot of trust in those who have gone before me. And I like to, you know, glean wisdom off of them. And these pilots said, don't worry about it. You'll get over it. And I thought that seems ridiculous, but I trust you. So I kept going (laughs) and I did get sick in pilot training. I got, it was really difficult because I would hear some of the other students come back and complain about how difficult it was and how hot and how challenging. And I'm thinking, you think it's difficult and you're not even getting sick. Well, I'm trying to fly and get sick at the same time, trying to manage that. But you get over it and they have ways to ensure that you do like spinning in a chair hours on end. And then you go fly after that. That's (laughs) that. I'm I'm getting nauseated just listening to Tammy. If you want it bad enough, you can get over it. The the teacups are the worst ride for me at at Disney. I will not go on that because that just makes me so sick. (laughs) Yeah. They literally will put you in, it's called a Bernie chair and it's a chair that they have this literally is like a hula hoop around it where they, you know, they spin you using that, that ring and they have you turn your head and they, they do that like five days in a row and you have to go fly. Um, I think you fly and then you do that every day for like five days. Now I actually was one ride short of having to do that. I almost had to go to the barony chair, but I didn't, I made it through. I learned that if I ate bread without butter, <laughs> in the morning and just water. I was okay. Oh my gosh. All right. Take us through what does training look like for a pilot starting on when you enlist to where you finally get to fly? Well, I'll have to tell you what it was like for me because they have changed it significantly in the last two years. It's similar, but not exactly the same, but I share my experience. So I got commissioned as a second Lieutenant in June. And at the time there was a delay because pilot training was backed up and it's still delayed right now, but I spent about nine months at Scott air force base in outside of St. Louis, Illinois, just attached to a C 21 squadron, just kind of learning the ropes a little bit. And then I showed up at pilot training and pilot training at the time was one year long and you fly two aircraft. Everybody starts off in the T 37. Well, you start off in academics and physiology and learning how to you know, jump, you know, land, if you came, uh, you know, if you had to eject, you know, how would you do a parachute landing fall? And you have to go in the altitude chamber and you do a lot of academics, but then you, you fly the T-37, I think it's about five months. And that's really where you learn. That's really where you become a pilot. You learn how to land, to spin, do stalls, aerobatics, formation, instruments, um, going cross country to different locations, 
the formation wasn't the best. That was uh, that hands down the best thing I've ever done in the air. You learn all that. And then at that point, they kind of rank you based on your performance, what you're, what they think of you as, you know, like their rating of you and then your preference. And they put those things together. And then we got divided up into different aircraft. So there was the fighter track, which is where I went. So I went on to fly the T-38. Some people went on to fly the T-1, which is more of the heavy aircraft track. There was a helicopter track after that. And then at the time there was also the C-130 track where they would go down to Corpus Christi and fly the T-44. So I got selected to fly the T-38, which is like a small fighter jet trainer. It's a two seat tandem aircraft and you learned more, you know, how to fly faster and more tactical maneuvering and formation. And, you know, just, just an advanced, basically advanced aircraft training. And then once you complete that program, uh, you graduate with your wings. And like I said, it's different now, but that's how, that's what happened. And then you get assigned to an aircraft based on, again, based on your performance, your preference and your rating. And I got assigned immediately as an instructor pilot in the T-37, which it is a, it's an honor to be chosen to be an instructor, but it's also, um, you kind of feel like you got to bite the bullet a little bit because your buddies are all going off to fly their fighters while you're staying back to teach people how to stall spin and you get puked on and it's hot. And, but you know, God has a plan and it was absolutely the best job for me. I learned that I loved instructing and I eventually did go on to fly. You know, I flew the a 10 and then the MQ one and the MQ nine after I had cervical spine reconstruction. And then I got a waiver or basically an exception to policy to go back into ejection seat aircraft after having spinal reconstruction. And I ended my career teaching in the T-38, the fighter trainer for six and a half years. And I just loved it. Well, that is your career in a nutshell there, I guess. Now let's, let's break it up a little bit. How long does, does it take, or did it take for you to get your wings? And then also I spoke with Wiz Buckley. Do you know who that is? I don't. Okay. Well, Wiz Buckley is a naval aviator. And one of the things that he said is that actually the practice and the learning, the instructions was actually more dangerous than flying deployments. And I'm curious to know if when you were learning, if there were some things that you were being taught that freaked you out or that maybe you felt like your life was in danger because he said they actually lost more people at Top Gun than he did on deployments. Hmm. I mean, I can agree with the statistics, um, but I would say I had a lot of trust as a student. I had a lot of trust in my instructors, maybe more so than I should have, but being fearful doesn't help anyone, to be honest, with the exception of, you know, being able to speak up when you're like, wait, this isn't right. But for the most part, there were things that were scary, but I knew that they, they knew what they were doing and they wouldn't have me attempting this if it hadn't been done before. For example, spins, I could have let spinning really scare me, but I knew that thousands of pilots had done it before me and there was a technique to get out of it. And that was just part of the process that I had to learn. And I would say it was more scary to go, go take the jet after I was an instructor and spin alone, which is super funny because you think it's more dangerous to spin with an inexperienced student in the other seat rather than alone. But there's something about having someone with you. Um, the other thing that I remember being a little bit scared about when we did formation and we were doing what we call wing work, 
where we are, we have three feet of wingtip separation and we maneuver up, up to 90 degrees. So when we're at 90 degrees and, and I'm the aircraft basically on the top, it really, your mind is telling you, you're going to fall into that other airplane and hit it. That's really not how it works. That's not how, um, that the concepts work, but it felt like it because that's what my brain kept telling me, but I just trusted the process. I think there's power in trusting the process and it makes everybody safer in reality. How did you feel on your first solo flight? You know, I wish I could remember. <laughs> I know that I was, I'm sure I was super nervous, but again, it was one of those things where they said I was ready. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I guess I'm going. And it's kind of, you know, I think landing after that first solo and then going up for the second solo was really where you're like, yeah, I can, your confidence significantly increases because you have that experience to go, I've done this. I've done it alone and I've been okay. Now, I know that you said that it was up to me if we discuss your call sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would really like to discuss your call sign. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Happy to do that. <laughs> go ahead. Tell us all about that. Okay. When I went to Korea, my first, um, combat a 10 squadron. And once you get what they call CMR combat mission ready. So even though, you know, you go through a year of pilot training and then, you know, we spent three months at introduction to fighter fundamentals flying the T-38, and then you go for six months to learn how to fly the a 10. So it's at least a two-year process to get to this point. You get there and you have to train locally, you have to learn local procedures. So you're really not checked out in the area yet to do combat missions. So that, you know, I showed up in November and I think it was January of 2005 when I got combat mission ready. And once you're combat mission ready, you are, you are allowed to get your call sign. And we would have a roll call, which typically happened on Friday evenings in our squadron at the time it was called a squadron bar it's now called a squadron heritage room. And I, in fact, think they're getting rid of some of them. I don't know, but it was, it was fun because it was a place to just kind of re relax and, and let loose. And, but we'd have this thing called a roll call, which is kind of like fun, ceremonial goofing off, I guess. And they basically tell stories and it has to, they say it has to have 10% truth to the story. <laughs> so they can, uh, you know, make lots of things up as long as there's 10% truth in it. But the bottom line is they used a flying story and they gave me the call sign G-Spot. The short version of the story is our heads up display in our cockpit had been recently upgraded. And I just kind of was, you know, when sometimes when you're flying, things get a little intense. And when I went in for a guns pass, I, instead of using the distance to the target number, I grabbed the G-meter so it was how many G's I was pulling at the time. And I was confused because it should have been, the range should have said no closer than 1.1. And it said 1.0, which makes sense for how many G's I was pulling at the time. The bottom line is, is that I made a mistake. And that's usually where these come from. So they came up with the name G-Spot. It's interesting because a lot of people, they hear that and they're like, oh, oh my gosh, they did what to you? Especially nowadays. I understand the response. I get that. But I think it's important to remember that it takes time to change culture. And at the time, I mean, I kind of was like, oh, well, that's not really the best call sign, but I'm not here. I wasn't, I told them, I guess I'm not here to change your, massively change your culture. I just, I want to fly jets. And 
even though I was 10 years behind the first female fighter pilots, looking back, I was still kind of at the forefront of it. There still had been very few. And I didn't realize that because I didn't even, I mean, when I got to pilot training, there were no limitations on what I could go fly. I kind of just took it as, you know, it is what it is. And they think it's funny. And the truth is, is that it, 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 it they liked me. If they didn't like me, they wouldn't have risked giving me that call sign. They're like, oh, she's cool. She'll be fine. It's not a problem. And around the squadron, it wasn't a problem. I, it was funny. I didn't let it bother me. And I didn't really let it bother me outwardly anywhere. But when I got to places like the officer's club and you're being introduced to the wing commander's wife and Mm. they look at you like, what did you do? It's really not a good feeling. And so that, that wasn't very pleasant or, you know, nowadays I have things around my office that this actually right here is a round from the A-10. It's one, one round. Wow. It has my call sign on it, but you can imagine my three children are like, G spot. What does that mean? Or, you know, you're telling grandma your call sign. They're like, what? Um, but it's important for me to share that about two years ago, I went to an A- A-10 squadron here in Tucson and the squadron commander was like, oh, what's your call sign? I'm like, well, what is it? Or what was it? And he said, well, both. I said, well, it's just G now, but it used to be G spot. And he looked at me and he goes, what? They named you that? So, you know, it just takes time to change culture. And we, the more we like push hard, the slower it's going to change. Now, I I don't mean that culture shouldn't change, but sometimes we just have to like, like nudge it. Nudging is, I think sometimes a faster result than, you know, pushing really hard. Did you serve with any other female pilots? I did. Yeah. And in fact, I was in the rare circumstance, there was like 30 people in my pilot training class and we had five women. That seems a lot. Really? unheard of. Yes. Um, and then beyond that, I, there was no women when I went to T-38s in, in my class, there was no women in my A-10 training or my IFF training. When I got to Korea, there was another woman there. And I was a little bit worried because, you know, women can sometimes be very like catty and like, Mm. and I think especially at the time there was a little bit of the token female, like there's only room for one. I am the one. And if, you know, like the bo- the guys are like checker box. We have our female. We don't need anymore. It wasn't. It we're we're not there anymore. We're not in that place. So there shouldn't be the battle. There's not one spot for one female. And when I got there and I, I met her, she's phenomenal. She is. She. We, I was in her wedding. She was in my wedding. We spent tons of time together. And all the other female fighter pilots I have met have been so truly amazing, supportive, and encouraging. And you know they're cheerleader cheerleaders for you, if you will. It's nice. It's not a battle like you can see in some, a lot of female environments, which is kind of sad, but. Now, before we did this interview, I sent uh, Tammy just a list of questions to get a better understanding of her experience. And with the women that I have spoken with, uh, we, I always bring up uh, the sexual harassment or MST. And you said that you did not experience the MST, which is military sexual trauma. But there was some sexual harassment. How did you handle that? And how did that come at you? Yeah, um, I I have to say there was definitely opportunity for people to take advantage of me. I mean, you know, when you're in an environment with people like that, and I was always treated like some their sister, you know, it was like brothers and sisters, you know, because there were situations where we had maybe had too much fun and 
they were protective of me and it was, it was great. It was awesome. As far as the harassment, I think there are occasions where there was more of it than I recognize because I believe that if you're looking for it, you're going to find it and you will find it in places. It's not actually happening, but you're interpreting it that way because mm, yeah. you're looking for it, especially today. Um, yes. There's a lot of places where it's not intended, but people are interpreting it as her- harassment. And I didn't look for it. I mean, on, on the backside of that, there are times where I'm sure people were, you know, making fun of me and I didn't even recognize it, but whatever, it would have only made it worse for me. So I just kept plugging away, just kept doing my job. My, my goal was to just do my job and do it the best I could and not be super sensitive about everything that was happening around me. Now, I mean, there's opportunity to speak up, right? And I'm sure there was missed opportunity on my part because I was like, oh, what do I do about that? We all have that looking back going, well, I wish I'd said something, but it is what it is. Now, as far as the actual harassment, there was occasions where, you know, we would be out and it usually happened when, you know, another one, somebody in my squadron was drinking too much. Mm, Yeah. And then they would end up like verbalizing thoughts in their mind that probably shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been shared. And there was one particular squadron where this, this guy in my squadron actually had to, he essentially protected me from his friend because he knew what happened when he started drinking. And it was, it was sad because it was like his job. When we go party, that's what he would do. He would just hang out with his buddy and keep him away from me. And I thought, that's awfully nice of you, but that's pretty sad that you have to do that. But I mean, it's pretty minimal. I mean, it would have been a lot worse if I had taken every sexual comment personally. And my interpretation of it is that as long as it's, you know, sexual innuendos, yes, they're inappropriate, but in that environment, if every sexual innuendo would have been taken personally, it would have been a really brutal experience for me. So as long as it wasn't personally targeted at me, I just, I just lived with it because it wasn't targeting me. They were just, you know, culturally working back to me and said that you, that your squadron had your back and they weren't going to let those kind of things happen to you. Yeah, they were great. I mean, there, there was still some of that chatter, you know, like right saying, so to speak after every time something could be interpreted as sexual. I mean, it gets a little ridiculous, but it was funny. I mean, you can play the game and laugh with it as long as it's not targeting anyone personally. I, I just, you know, it, it was the environment and it's shifting. So now I asked Aaron and I thought her answer was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> about what that feeling what? <laughs> was when she broke the sound barrier and she said it was completely underwhelming. Do you, oh, yeah. The same way. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're like, okay, we're going to, this is the Zoom boom ride. They don't even do it anymore. Um, but it was called the Zoom boom ride. And you're so excited because you break the sound barrier. And they were, they, they told me you might see a little like bop in the gauges. And I was like, okay, okay. That's it. I didn't even see anything. <laughs> <laughs> she said, she said that which this is, I think is scary is that the gears become kind of mushy. I don't even remember. She has a better memory than I do. I just remember <laughs> thinking it wasn't really like, okay. it was more of a like, oh, I can say I did that. And I think that they realized it was just a lot of wasted gas. Yes. Letting yeah. pilots go. I broke the sound barrier because <laughs> there was yeah. really no benefit to it. Yeah. When she told me that the gears got a little mushy, I thought, well, that's kind of scary when you're going that fast. And she said, no, you can still, they still work. Okay. They just feel different. And I'm just thinking, (laughs) well, that's still kind of scary to me. I don't know. (laughs) How many deployments did you have and where did you go? That's a good question because I have a very strange career. I didn't ever deploy. Wow. 
And I'll, yeah, I'll explain why. So 9-11, I was instructing in the T-37. So what my wartime peacetime mission was the same. And I just stayed instructing at Laughlin. Well, I don't know how many of my students went off to fight the war eventually. And then I went to the A-10 and I was assigned to Korea. And Korea was considered combat, you know, when you fly up on the DMZ. And we didn't deploy from Korea. So even though people were flying in Afghanistan, I we didn't deploy from there. My next A-10 assignment was back at Davis-Monthan in Tucson. And when I arrived in the squadron, they were deployed. So they were gone when I got back and they came back, you know, I don't know how long after I arrived there, but shortly after they came back. So I got back in November and in March of 2006, I had cervical spine reconstruction from an aircraft injury I'd had. And because of the process of getting exception to policy or a waiver to fly again was complicated at that time. I didn't seek it because there was a brand new unmanned platform. We call them remotely piloted aircraft or RPA, the predator, the reaper that was standing up. They were, it was brand new and they were standing it up um, right on Davis Monthan air force base. And they knew that I had a, a close air support background from flying the a 10 and being that they had slapped weapons on this unmanned platform that used to be a flying camera, it changed the mission dramatically. And they needed people who understood how to operate with weapons in battle really, and how to understand how that fight works because they had a lot of tanker pilots, which they're great pilots. They just were unfamiliar with how to operate that way. So I basically went from full-time active duty to the next day I was full-time air national guard for the Arizona guard. And so when you're doing that mission, your combat, it's combat support time. And my butt is in the United States while my airplane is flying in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I have a couple, I don't know how many thousand hours doing that. So you don't deploy. I did go to Al-UD twice for a conference because they had a war fighting conference. And obviously, even though I'm in Tucson, I'm fighting the war. So they needed in order to have a voice represented there, I, I flew there twice for the conference, but that's not, that wasn't deploying. So strangely enough, I never, I never deployed because after that tour and I, I went back to pilot training as a full-time reservist teaching again, which is what I love to do. And the reason I took that job was because my husband is a border patrol agent and we have three kids and it's really a challenging thing to try and deploy. Right. So I had a, a very strange career not deploying. And it's interesting because part of me holds a little bit of guilt, you know, like why didn't I, I didn't do that, but you know, everybody has a different path and this is where my path took me. And it wasn't because I was avoiding it. It was just how it happened. I would have loved to go support that. Can I segue since you mentioned that about your husband, just for yes. like two minutes. Sure. What is your take and your husband's take on what is happening at the border specifically in Arizona? Well, I will speak for myself based on um, things I hear and things I see, but, you know, having about 12,000 people cross our border every single day and having our agents be busy processing paperwork as all these people walk over and go, I'm claiming amnesty. And we are like, welcome to the United States. I mean, they're doing paperwork and, you know, like not getting to do the job they were intended to yeah. do. It, it's, it's messy. It's really, really messy. And it's, it's very, very scary. Oh yes. It's, it's overwhelming. And yeah, it's out of control. I know a lot of people don't know that, but it's really, really bad. How long has he been doing it? And can he sustain because so many of them are leaving? Yeah. 21 years. Wow. And he plans to go to retirement, which for him will be 50. So he's got three years left. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How did you feel then about not flying the fighter jets anymore? 
Was that hard for you to not be able to do that? It was hard, but you know, one of the things I'm doing now is I'm doing mental performance coaching and I'm specifically focusing on aviators. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm doing that is I realized that that was part of my success in my career was mindset and mental performance, things I didn't even realize that could be trained. I was already doing. And why do I bring that up now? I bring it up now because it's all about, it's kind of the, you know, you make the best of what you have. And even though I would have loved to stay in the A-10, it just wasn't the path for me. And when I step into a new role, I'm not going to look backwards and, you know, smash into something while I'm looking backwards and trying to walk forward at the same time. It doesn't work. So, you know, I let that go and I poured everything I could into flying the the predator and ultimately the reaper at weapon school. And I, you know, I went to weapon school. I was in the first class of RPA pilots to go through weapon school. And I did that because I wanted to know more. I was one of this, you know, as a senior instructor in our squadron and I didn't have all the answers and no, you won't all always have all the answers, but I thought, you know, I need to know more so that I can help my squadron even more. So that's why I ended up going to weapon school for, for six months when my kids were 18 months and three months old. You're in Arizona then, and you're flying an unmanned craft that's that that's thousands of miles away. Is that right? Yes. I can't even comprehend that. What <laughs> is the mission of those unmanned craft? What was the mission of yours? Well, it was overwatch and protection pretty much. So we would get assigned to a, somebody on the ground who was saying, Hey, go here, look there. And sometimes we were, you know, supporting a raid, providing overwatch for our soldiers raiding a compound. Sometimes we were just looking for someone. Sometimes we were scanning roads to see if people were digging in the middle of the night about to place an ID on a road where our, our troops are going to drive through the next day. And so that's what we were, that's what we were doing. That technology is incredible. Is it one person that flies each craft or is it multiple? How does that work? Well, I mean, I haven't flown it since 2011 and things have changed, but you know, it was a, essentially a crew of three. There's okay. one pilot who flies the plane. There is a sensor operator who controls the camera and the laser essentially when we shoot missiles. And then there's a, an Intel person who would sit and in, inside like our operating center and kind of be the conduit of information, helping us see data and talk to the, we call them the customer, you know, the person on the ground who needed our help. You know, sometimes we talk to them on the radio. Sometimes we talk to them through a secure, basically a secure chat. You know, it takes multiple eyes to get all the information and it depends on the scenario. You know, if it's, if it's radio only, you know, it's more heavily burdened to those that were sitting in, inside the control station. But if sometimes it was more through the chat, then we needed that third person. And sometimes even almost sometimes too many people would get involved because you can. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. So that was a complication of the platform. But they've ironed a lot of those things out since since I was in the community. How high do they fly and how fast? Yeah, I a don't remember. And B, I don't think I can share it even. OK, if I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten a few of those, but I can imagine yeah. just how far they've come. Since yeah. the last time you have flown them. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I wouldn't even recognize it. So you're out of the Air Force, out of the reserves. What year is this that you are done with that? When did I retire? Yeah. yeah so I went, so I was full-time. I told you I was went full-time into the guard. What I did was um, I ended, I wanted to get back flying again. I love teaching. So I, I literally went 
the next from full-time guard into full-time reserve duty. And I did that for six and a half years and retired in 2018. How did you sustain that injury? <laughs> yeah, it was when I was at the end of my T37 tour. So my first tour instructing the T37 has a really, it was the fastest G onset rate in the entire aircraft, air force aircraft inventory. So we could go to zero, zero to six G forces in super fast. Oh my gosh. And we were flying formation and I wasn't flying the aircraft. The other instructor pilot was, and I was just looking up through the bubble canopy at the other aircraft and didn't expect this, but he went from zero to, I don't know what really fast. And my neck got crunched like basically backwards. And I was like, Oh, that was brutal. And I got down, my neck was kind of sore and I was like, Oh, this isn't good. But I knew I was about to leave to go, you know, progress to fly the a 10. I'm like, this is not a good time for this to happen. I was in a position where I could kind of pull myself off the schedule without going to the flight dock. I'm like, Oh, you know? And so I, I did that. And then I went to IFF, which is introduction to fighter fundamentals. It's basically a weed out program where they make sure you, you can execute the basics of flying a fighter aircraft, whether, you know, like the dog fighting and the bomb dropping basics. And I couldn't handle the pain. So I went to a chiropractor and then all the way through A-10 training, I went to a chiropractor and then I went to the A-10 in Korea and they didn't have chiropractors, or at least I didn't know of any, this is 2003, 2004. And eventually my neck locked up on me and I, I could, couldn't really move it. it hurt so bad. And I literally there, you know, I might be smart in some respects, but dumb pilot, right. I went flying. Cause I was like, ah, you can't do anything else besides fly. That's what I'm trained to do. I don't know why we think that that's the only thing we can do, but course is super fun too. And it's was my job. But I remember at the end of the runway before takeoff, I kind of looked down at my leg where we keep paperwork to see what, what is my actual takeoff time supposed to be? And I was like, Oh, I could barely move. And I was like, okay. Well, good thing. This isn't, you know, an air to air dog fighting flight today. I uh, eventually went to the flight dock and they said that I had, they labeled it as a protruding disc. So it's weird. Had I, had it been labeled, uh, herniated, I would have been grounded, but because they documented as protruding, they're like, well, do you want to keep flying? And I was like, I do, but I don't think it's the smartest thing. So I tried physical therapy and continued to fly. And then when I got back, um, to Davis Monthan and my squadron was deployed, I went to an, a flight, I went to another doctor and he did the surgery and he found basically when he went in there at my disc between, um, six, seven was he was literally pulling pieces of my disc out because it was crunched and it was like starting to tap on my spinal cord. So that's how that happened. Do you still experience pain today? Um, I'm just starting to, again, be, oh. basically what happens because those two levels are fused together with a titanium plate and some screws, there's, there's not movement there. So it's putting extra pressure on above and below now, nothing as bad as that. So we'll see, but they do have better techniques nowadays where they, they can actually put fake discs in, which would have been a great option instead of actually having it fused and removed. But I, you know, you, you do what you can do at the time. So we'll see if I need anything else. Um, I, I mean, that may come to be, but we'll see. What advice do you have for women who want to join the military and maybe specifically want to become pilots? Well, I mean, it's the same advice I would give anyone else. I, I would just say you have to have your goal solidly established. Um, so on the hard days, you have something to look at, something to think about. 
And I think it's also important to recognize that there will be challenges. There will be challenges. And I think that everyone knows that, but I think the key is to actually tell yourself there's going to be challenges that are beyond what I think I can handle and beyond my expectations. So when those challenges come, you go, okay, I was hoping they wouldn't be this big, but they're big and I can overcome because you can, I mean, there's so many things, you know, going to weapons school when my babies were three months and 18 months, people thought it was crazy. They like, you can't do that. I'm like, we can do it. You know, I mean, <laughs> you have to have the right support network, obviously, but you can, we can do hard things. It's all about your mindset and how, how you take it. So it's important that you, you're aware of your thoughts. You're aware of the thoughts that drive you and you don't grab onto the negative ones. Have your children expressed an interest in following in mom's footsteps? Only my littlest one. My littlest one that is like, she's like a little mini me. They're it's always funny. the spitfires. My youngest is a spitfire. <laughs> it, she is. I call her my spicy child. Some days she's pepper, but most days she's habanero. Um, <laughs> yeah, she is definitely the one that's d- the most interested, but we'll see. She's the one we take to the Pima Air, Mu- Air and Space Museum just up the road. And she's like, when can we come back? And it's funny because I'm like, huh, I like to fly, but I'm not super into all the planes, which maybe hurt somebody's, some people's feelings, but it's the truth. I like, I like the ride. I don't want to, I don't know. I'm one of those pilots. Like I need to know about my own plane, but I don't know every screw and switch in every other plane. Not that everybody does, but some people really love airplanes. I just love flying. Do you get up very often? Are you able to do that? No, I don't, I don't actually fly anymore. I'm, I'm kind of a, as I told you, talked about going into the RPA community, the unmanned platform and how I, you know, you, I'm going to do, I'm all in. That's how I feel about civilian flying as well. I really don't have the time right now to be all in. And I don't like doing things halfway, especially something that's dangerous, like flying. And could I do it? Absolutely. But I, I just want to make sure when that, you know, that I think the time will come when I get back in the cockpit and I want to do that. I would love to instruct again, but now is not the time. My kids are between nine and 15. They're all into sports and we absolutely love the sports and I enjoy all the driving. I mean, not to sense that I choose it when I don't have to, but I choose to enjoy it. You know, I don't enjoy all the driving. It's not going to be here <laughs> forever. Oh, I love all the conversations we have. You can, you can imagine them with my mindset training, what the, the questions <laughs> I ask my kids. <laughs> what is Athena's voice? Athena's voice is it's a speaker referral business. It used to be a bureau, um, but I shifted it to just simply a referral business where there we have female military pilots who are all professional speakers that if someone reaches out to me, I will essentially match them with the best speaker possible for their events. And just, it's just, I get a referral fee for that. And that's it. It's uh, I just think that more women need to be out there speaking, not, not just pilots. What, when we put the business together, originally I had a business partner and the dream was really that it would be all career fields, all ranks, all services, mm-hmm. but scaling to that level was not, not something that was in the cards for me at the phase I am in life right now. So I recognize that there are stories, many amazing, inspiring stories beyond military pilots. Um, it's just the, but right now that's where it is. Cause that's about all I can handle. <laughs> I have to ask about the little, is that a figurine behind you? Uh, this one? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll grab it for you. Actually, Okay. For those who are actually watching the video, it is a Top Gun. It's a Phoenix doll from Top Gun Maverick. And I thought this was really interesting because she looks like I you. never, 
thought that I would look like a Barbie or that a Barbie would look like me. But what this is what I looked like when I wore my uniform it was the same uniform. I pulled my hair back just like this. I have dark hair. It, it was just I had to get it. Yeah, it, it was uh, pretty inspiring to see that. So I had to buy one. I also have a um, you can see over here. There's a Bessie Coleman doll right there. I can see it. Oh, right yes. Here. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's pretty inspiring as well. If you don't know who Bessie Coleman is, you should look her up. She's pretty incredible. <laughs> what are your feelings about having served in the Air Force? Um, I mean, like negative, positive? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. I mean, what, how do you feel about your overall career? I'm proud of it. I'm, I, it was, I loved being part of the service. Like I said, you know, I love being part of a team. That's why initially when my husband mentioned that I should go into professional speaking, I looked at him like he was crazy and I got a little bit nauseous because I thought, mm -mm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't want that attention. Uh, but the truth is I realized it was so many women go quietly off into the night and don't share their stories that we continue to have the same issues again and again and again. They don't, we don't have people standing up saying, but I've done it. You know, I hear, still hear people say, well, I can't have a family. I want to be a fighter pilot or I, I don't want, I can't be a fighter pilot. I want to have a family. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, you can do hard things. You can think outside the box. And so that's why I decided to start speaking about my, my experiences in the military. But the reason I point that out is because it's a very solo business and I definitely miss being part of a team because it's just so much, so much more energizing for me to be on a team. Where can we find you on social media and on the web? The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I try to post, um, I post with intention not to get attention. So I don't necessarily post a ton, but you know, I want to make it very thoughtful. So I, I post on LinkedIn. I, I like to do that. Um, I also have, uh, if you, you're looking for a speaker, you can go to Athena's voice, USA.com. So Athena is the, is in the goddess of wisdom and war voices and speaking, um, USA.com. And then I also have my mental performance coaching for aviators business that I'm launching. I'm launching a course. It's a four week course and it'll, it will repeat that's, um, if you can go to Tammy and you can find information about that course there. What are your goals for the future? Hmm. You know, my biggest goal is just to make a positive, significant impact to those around me right now, specifically a goal is really just to help those in aviation who are lacking in confidence and maybe a little bit of belief in themselves. I mean, that applies everywhere. Can it mental performance training applies well beyond aviation. I mean, it started really in professional sports, right? People using mental performance training. So it applies to anyone, but I really have a heart for those aviators out there who are like, I can't, I can't do this. I, you can do it. And you know, when I, when I was an instructor pilot, I learned that even though I did a lot of stick and rudder instruction, the most impactful training was the mental performance training. I didn't even realize that I was giving them just simply by, you know, caring about them and what was going on in their, in their mind and helped change those thought processes. And finally, Tammy, what does America mean to you? Oh, uh, to me, America means freedom. You know, you really, it's, it sounds very simple and maybe common, but it's the truth. If you go anywhere else, you, you realize that we have so much freedom to, you know, whether it's how we think or what we do or what, you know, what job we choose. 
So that's, that's one word that describes it for me. Absolutely. Is, is having freedom. And it's such a peaceful thing because we can make our own choices. Well, Tammy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your American story with us. You are welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 